Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 700 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, he of Scratchy Throat, here for This Week in FCPA episode 130 for the week ending November 23, 2018, the Thanksgiving holiday edition. So as Jay and I move from eating way too much to watching some great college football, and as we have recorded recording this, the uh, University of Texas won today. Hook them horns. Look at some of the top compliance and ethics stories of the week. And Jay, you might have thought as a holiday week, things might slow down a little bit, but uh, apparently not. No, we took some time off to uh, eat some turkey and some of us went to Italy, but the FCPA and anti-corruption world just rolls right along. And uh, that being said, let's uh, talk about one of Tom's favorite industries, the energy and extractive industry. And uh, what is the uh, the latest news on vintage drilling? Uh, so, Jay, we had a uh, <clears throat> settlement, an SEC administrative settlement with vantage drilling. And this was really unique for a couple of reasons. The first is that the Department of Justice had given Vantage a declination, a full pass, no declination with disgorgement. And that had happened in the summer of 2017. Then we had uh, Vantage had had a contract with Petrobras, and uh, Petrobras had fired Vantage, claiming that the contract was based on uh, bribery and corruption. And <clears throat> the parties went to arbitration, and Petrobras lost and had to pay some uh, $622 million, uh, or ordered to pay $622 million uh, to Petrobras. So typically when you have a contract that's based on uh, illegal conduct, it's void. Nevertheless, uh, Vantage agreed to a $5 million SEC settlement. <clears throat> and here the um, bribery mechanism was a little bit unusual because it was an um, outside director who was the company's largest supplier. And he was given, I think, uh, $18 million, excuse me, $31 million to uh, uh, forwarded that or fronted that money and he used that to pay bribes. So uh, next up, um, we've got an article that comes to us from um, the New York Times and um, Facebook admits that it hired an opposition research firm to dig up dirt on its opponents. So this uh, really is just another black eye for Facebook. Uh, this really goes back to the whole uh, Russian um, 
election manipulation scheme back in uh, 2016 for the elections. And um, I, I don't know if you got to see the CNN interview with uh, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, but it was, um, you know, he was just on his heels. There's this uh, great reporter from CNN who gets these exclusives with him. And uh, I think uh, what we're going to see going forward is uh, we might be uh, seeing a, a redo of what happened with Elon Musk and um Tesla that I think there is enough, uh, I guess, uh, not a shadow of a doubt, but there is uh, Facebook just looks like they are slipping further and further into um, uh, a pack of lies. And I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens with both Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg. So uh, this does put uh, Facebook in a more precarious situation. And I think uh, there might be some board control issues where the board may have to step aside and do something with either one of those two execs. Your thoughts on it, Tom? Yeah. Um, so this came out of a really a stunning New York Times report about uh, the opposition research that you mentioned, how Facebook had used that, particularly against George Soros, but with a wide variety of their critics. And at first they denied the entire report. So it was all falsehoods, uh, misreporting by the New York Times, and it turns out it was pretty much all true. And uh, on the Wednesday evening or Wednesday afternoon before Thanksgiving, Facebook issued a long mea culpa a press release where the uh, head of the company's communication department admitted that he had personally hired the uh, or approved the hiring of the opposition research firm and that that information <clears throat> developed by the firm was sent up to Sheryl Sandberg in memos. So you're absolutely right. It's a <coughs> very big and bad black eye for Facebook. Probably going to lead to more congressional investigations. It may lead to more regulation. And Facebook, for reasons that just seem un unbelievable to me, cannot keep from stepping in it. And they're <laughs> stepping on themselves. So uh, next up, we've got uh, for two weeks in a row, uh, another article from John Roush had his excellent blog, Dipping Through the Geometries. And uh, Tom, uh, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this with a French, French accent, but tell me what is an ethical bricolage? So that's a very interesting question. And uh, <clears throat> the article by John, who has is, is really uh, just come on the scene with some really interesting blog posts, so you should definitely check it out if, if you're not doing it already, <clears throat> He quoted a speech from uh, Giovanni Buttarelli, the European Data Protection Supervisor, who gave an address at <clears throat> an international conference of data protection privacy commissioners in Brussels. And it really drove home how different the Europeans think about privacy than we do here in the United States. All right. Well, next up, uh, I get to use more of my French and uh, French bank uh, Société Générale SA has agreed to pay a $1.34 billion in penalties and sanctions uh, from claims that it's uh, but claims now that its compliance program is first rate. Uh, this comes to us from um, Dick Casson at the FCPA blog and basically uh, Paris based SocGen. The third biggest French bank admitted that it violated sanctions on Cuba, Iran, and Sudan. The violations started in 2003 
and continue all the way to 2013. And the way the money breaks down, uh, of total of 1.34 billion, 717 million goes to DOJ, 325 to the New York Department of Financial Services, 163 million to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, 81 to the U.S. Federal Observe, and not to be left out, OFAC to the U.S. Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control got 54 million, and then the bank also paid another 95 million to the DFS for anti-laundering laundering offensive. So this is uh, another situation of a foreign bank having. Um, had uh, illegal relationships with sanctioned countries for more than a 10-year period. Um, OFAC said Sokgen voluntarily self-disclosed. And um, basically, uh, Frederic Udea, Sokgen CEO, said that they acknowledge and regret the shortcomings that were identified in Monday settlements and have cooperated with U.S authorities to resolve these matters. So uh, even as we get to the end of the year and a holiday weekend, uh, we still see that there are large institutions that have uh, issues with the sanctions. So, Jay, one of the things that interested, interested me was that federal prosecutors credited Sokjin with not only accepting responsibility through this internal investigation, but enhancing its compliance program. The Federal Reserve retained a right to an independent consultant who will evaluate the bank's process. And when you stack this up with the $585 million FCPA settlement, uh, I think in June, but uh, certainly earlier this year, it shows a bank with a culture that uh, during this time frame uh, clearly was not up to snuff. And whether after paying, uh, you know, one point nearly $1.9 billion in fines over several different violations, you uh, really wonder if they can make a change and whether that change will stick. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not betting on them. I, I'm, I'm sure uh, my bet would be recidivist, but let's see, we'll see what comes next. Uh, next up on our list, I uh, think things can get any, work for gold, get any worse for Goldman Sachs. Uh, Emily Flitter, Matthew Goldstein, and Kate Kelly report in the New York Times. So what's the latest for our friends at Goldman's and 1MDB? Well, uh, it, it's not just the case that keeps on giving, Jay. It, it just It's unbelievable. It just gets worse by the release of information. This week, we find out two things. <clears throat> One was Lloyd Blankfeld, Field, the uh, former CEO, not only did he meet with Jay Lowe and the former prime minister of Malaysia, but he actually had a private meeting with Jay Lowe to talk about deals that Jay Lowe was heading up uh, around 1MDB or allegedly talking about. Uh, their notes of the meeting have taken were not have not been released. But this puts Jay Lowe, the really the bad guy uh, actor <coughs> who uh, led the 1MDB scandal, straight in the heart of uh, Goldman Sachs. And the um, Goldman Sachs stock continually continues to suffer because of this. <clears throat> They've basically been written out of any further offerings in Malaysia and uh, Southeast Asia 
countries are loath to do business with them now. The other piece of news we found out this week was the government of Abu Dhabi, their sovereign wealth fund has sued Goldman Sachs for uh, uh, violations of the SCPA in terms of facilitating bribe payments to Abu Dhabi officials, uh, which allowed the the deals with 1MDB to go through. And uh, it's a really bad week for Goldman on the uh, 1MDB front. Uh, next up, we have an article from our good friend Mike Volkov from his Corruption, Climb, and, and Compliance blog, and he takes a look at the intersection of behavioral sciences and compliance. So uh, Mike is always a, a very good read on these subjects, and uh, what he talks about here is that, uh, you know, Ethics and compliance is a profession that depends on blending a number of skill sets to bring about uh, effective ethics and compliance management. And it's a profession and an expertise all to itself. And as it grows and as more people move into the profession, new compliance officers bring perspective, expertise, and one key experience ingredient experience. In other words, the best teacher here is experience. So he uh, talks about in terms of that there are behavioral studies that uh, come into play with ethics and compliance, but it's not only uh, the pure behavioral context we have that might find fascinating, but there are studies where persons, when given a specific set of rules, can cheat the system to earn immediate valuable benefits. Uh, to to uh, Mike, the interesting results of the studies are that participants often cheat at the margins and usually rationalize such cheating is not such a big deal. These studies, in his view, perhaps uh, because he was a federal prosecutor for so long, provide insights into people who engage in misconduct and thinking patterns. So um, it's, a, it's a good quick read, uh, but it also uh, shows you where Mike really is able to leverage his years of experience um, dealing in this field and, um, you know, taking a look at issues such as this. Any, anything that you've got from it, uh, Tom? So I thought Mike uh, really kind of raised uh, perhaps, a, if not a stop sign, a yellow light to, in considering the behavioral issues. And <clears throat> part of his thoughts seemed to be that behavioral science has merely confirmed what Many people, including prosecutors and others, compliance officers, lawyers, kind of felt in their gut. And what I find, though, is that <clears throat> by having that academic research, I really uh, help it, think it helps to validate many of these points. And I would point to the recent academic research on uh, hotlines and the ROI and ROA on hotlines and how not only does it drive down costs, but it improves the corporate culture. And having that academic research is helpful. So uh, I, I, for one, would really like to see a little bit more of it, even if it's confirming things that uh, perhaps many of us or certainly Mike uh, had an insights into from, from being a prosecutor. Right. Next up, uh, a question that Sarah Croft weighs uh, in on grand jury target. And uh, we'll leave it up to you, Tom, to tell us, should the president or anyone else answer written questions from a prosecutor? So Sarah Croft is a defense attorney in Washington, and she writes a great blog that I chastise her that she doesn't write enough, but it's entitled Grand Jury Target. And she really takes a look at 
that question that you posed, Jay. <clears throat> and uh, as a defense attorney, Sarah, of course, thinks you should never uh, testify under oath unless you absolutely have to. But uh, she points out <clears throat> that lies and written answers are still lies, <clears throat> and that uh, whether you intended to or you misspoke or you said something incorrect based upon an earlier tweet, comment, speech, or other, uh, it can certainly um, go downhill very quickly. She she also points out something I really hadn't thought through, which was our written questions are not normal, and that uh, <clears throat> that uh, that in and of itself makes it unusual. So she certainly understands that uh, Trump is not writing his own answers, but um, she said that uh, a number of things that the lawyers must do to make sure that the answers written are correct. They got to read his emails to the extent he uses emails. I hope he's not using his own personal server like his daughter, but review his text, his call records and other information uh, that he would have. So she says it's a very slippery slope and <clears throat> cautions against it. Uh, well, that, that makes sense to me. Uh, next up, Danske Bank whistleblower reveals money laundering ties to Deutsche Bank, Bank of America, and J.P. Morgan. And we go to uh, Kalina Markertoff, who reports this in The Guardian. So it's, it's good to get a little bit of a, a perspective from the continent. And uh, as, as I just said, uh, Danske Bank, a major European lender, and two U.S. banks have become embroiled in an alleged 200 billion euro, 170 billion pound money laundering scheme, uh, following new testimony by a key whistleblower and Howard Wilkinson, who served as the head of Donska Bank's trading unit in the Baltic region until 2014, uh, revealed to Danish parliamentary hearing, hearings that other lenders were involved in processing billions of dollars worth of suspicious pay payments with links to Danske Bank's Estonian branch. Uh, officials in Denmark, the U.S., and Estonia and Britain are investigating about 200 billion uh, euros worth of payments. Uh, nobody really knows where the money went. All of us, all that they know is that the last people to see it were these three large banks in the U.S., so Deutsche Bank, J.P. Morgan, and Bank of America were all reportedly involved in clearing these transactions at the Estonian bank branch, bank branch, excuse me. And it's not known whether these banks are referred to in Wilkinson's comments. So this is something that's uh, been brewing on uh, the horizon for the last few weeks. And again, it just shows you how interconnected we are from all sorts of monetary transactions, but uh, none the least, wherever you are around the globe, if you're moving funds electronically and you're doing this um, in an illegal manner, it's going to show up sooner rather than later. Jay, uh, we had a really interesting report <clears throat> that we get annually from the SEC after the close of the government's fiscal year, and it's on their whistleblower program. And uh, the report was just a stunning in terms of several factors. First of all, between 2011 and 2017, there have been $158 million in bounties paid under the SEC whistleblower program under Dodd-Frank. <clears throat> that figure was eclipsed completely in uh, fiscal year 2017-18 with $168 million in payments made. 
There were over 5,200 tips uh, uh, sent in or called in or brought into the whistleblower program, uh, up nearly 20% in the past year. And uh, this sort of information in the face of the SEC trying to cut back their whistleblower program would really seem to uh, really go in the face of what they're trying to do uh, in terms of making it less available or the bounties less available. It's clearly a stunning success for the SEC. You can see that corporate America may not think so, but uh, for those enforcing securities law, this has clearly been a, a huge success. And I don't think anyone really realized how big a success until this report came out. Indeed. So the last one we have to look at is uh, kind of shocking news that hit right before Thanksgiving. Uh, Nissan chairman arrested, removed from the board and fired all in 48 hours. We go to Motoko Rich uh, in a story in the New York Times. And um, basically, uh, he was let go as chairman. Uh, Gosen was let go as chairman three days after he was arrested on allegations of underreporting his income to the government regulators over a period of seven years, several years. Uh, the board's vote was a grim rebuke of Mr. Gosen, one of the car industry's most powerful leaders and the man who saved Nissan almost 20 years ago. So um, basically, uh, both. Goshen, and I guess his um, right-hand man, Mr. Kelly, are responsible for underreporting his income, and that um, affects uh, information that a publicly traded company like Nissan should be uh, reporting to the board. Um, basically, what was uh, very interesting is that they took them to jail swiftly. They were let go from the boards of Nissan, from Renault and Mitsubishi. But what's curious to me, Tom, and I'd like your take on it, is why they are still members of the board if what they did was so egregious and um, leads to them being removed from management. Why are they still involved with the boards of all these companies? Uh, at, th at this point, it's really hard to say that I would expect that they'd be removed from the board. I'm, I'm, I agree with you that this is just stunning. Uh, this is so unusual. As you, as you correctly noted, I was in Europe this week, and we didn't link to it, but the Financial Times had a lead editorial on uh, Mr. Gosen personally and uh, how he uh, really come to see himself as above uh, all rules. And that uh, this is really the absolute worst thing for any CEO to have. So um, just absolutely stunning that someone at this level uh, be arrested, fired, and removed. Um, and the fallout for Nissan, for Renault, um, may, may be catastrophic and even cataclysmic. Uh, at that point, we, we still don't know, although the stock prices are all down. So a very stunning news you rarely see. <clears throat> the top guy from one of the top three automakers in the world arrested. Uh, just uh, I can't emphasize enough how stunned I was by all this. Now, I can't remember if I read this or not. Was there any type of emissions control um, angle to this, Tom, or not? No, this was just uh, the old-fashioned uh, underreporting of income. Oh, okay. Just, uh, just old school. Just, just in time when the just when money. the families get back together. Just money. Just money, yeah. And like, uh, I think there were instances where he'd use company funds to buy his wife jewelry and things that you would think are uh, 
pretty well known as uh, corporate no-nos. Right. So uh, no, no, uh, no seminars set up for the end of the year. Uh, once you get your voice back, is there anything else that uh, we can let our listeners know to expect? Do you have any uh, year-end uh, blogs or podcasts planned? Actually, I have a really interesting series of uh, podcasts this month, uh, depending on when my voice comes back. I'd hope to do a series next week on uh, <clears throat> compliance lessons from Venice. But if I can't talk any better than this by Sunday, I'm not sure I can record an hour. And then uh, I'm doing a series with Candace Tall on the deep dive into due diligence. We're still working on the uh, affiliated monitor series for this month, and we'll see where it all goes. And then what about the uh, the newest podcast that's going to be coming up from our good friends, um, Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine? When does that debut? Uh, I I think it's in mid-December, but uh, I'm not quite sure if we have a specific date, but uh, they are doing great women in compliance, and I'm really excited about that as addition to the Compliance Podcast Network. Great. Well, in order to save your voice and uh, get us uh, get us out the door, uh, I'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 129, the Thanksgiving holiday edition. For Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist who hopes to have his voice back soon. Uh, myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Uh, we wish you all a great weekend. Hope you uh, had some uh, great turkey and uh, family interaction. And uh, here's to listening to us and maybe having a leftover turkey sandwich. Thanks a lot and take care. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.